0: Before we begin our study this morning, um, just in light of what Britton was saying, just the absence of fathers in our culture, I think it's super important uh, that we just take a moment to honor um, the fathers here and just to honor fatherhood. So I I just wrote something out and I just want to read it for you and then we'll get into our study. So fathers, we thank you for the many years of diligence and faithfulness. We thank you for long work days, we thank you for long weeks, just tirelessly providing for your families. We thank you for long nights when you stayed up with us, cleaned up our barf, uh, wiped our butts, you know, just all the different ways in which uh, you comforted us and dispelled our often irrational fears. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for being a rock of stability in our lives, someone that we can talk to, that we can uh, tell our greatest dreams to, someone that we can share our greatest fears with. Thank you for answering when we call, day or night. Thank you for showing us how to be tough and also how to be tender. You wrestle with us, but you don't crush us with your superior strength. Thank you for supporting us through our good times and bad, rebellious and embarrassing, awkward and clumsy, and everything in between. Thanks for sticking by us. We honor you fathers who have stayed and have shown us what it means to be loved unconditionally. And we encourage you as you continue to love and lead our families in a Christ-sacrificial way, keep going. Keep going doing it. It is so worth the sacrifice. And lastly, we mourn the loss of biological fathers who have forsaken us or failed us, but we bless and honor those surrogate fathers, uncles, big brothers, friends, and everyone in between who have taken their place and have manifested to us the great love of our Father in heaven. So to all fathers, young and old, Everywhere in between, happy Father's Day. All right. Now, we're going to talk about pain and suffering again. (laughs) All right? So would you stand for the reading of God's word? Isaiah 53, I'm reading from NIV this morning. Isaiah the prophet says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He was like one of those people that we hide our faces from. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, every one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of a soul. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgression. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. You can be deceived. So if it's your first time joining us, uh, welcome uh, to Refuge Christian Fellowship. Uh, We've dedicated this year to biblical literacy. And what that means is as a church, we are reading the Bible ourselves to know firsthand what it teaches and in order to be shaped by its story, the story of God. Now in our current series, uh, we're calling it the School of Life, we have been discussing pain and suffering how we go through it, how we uh, approach God in our pain and suffering. And if you've been paying attention in your reading through the year of biblical literacy, you've noticed that there's a lot of suffering in the Bible. In fact, I don't know of a biblical character who doesn't experience some amount of pain and suffering in their life. So just a side note, as we are reading along and studying the scripture is offering us many fellow travelers on this life's road of pain and suffering. It gives us words to identify, "Oh, I'm suffering." <laughs> That's what this is, right? Uh, but it also gives us words to express our pain and our suffering. I loved Mike's teaching last week on Psalm 77, just giving us words that we are allowed to say to God. God, I'm angry. God, I'm lonely, I feel lost, I feel God-forsaken. These are very important for us to know how we can speak to God in our pain and suffering. And the scripture gives us those words. It gives us songs to sing and prayers to pray to bring us comfort through the dark night of the soul. And my prayer is that as we read and assimilate this story of God, these characters will become our close companions, and their songs and their prayers will become ours, and we will be truly shaped by uh, this word, this story. Now, it's been mentioned before. When it comes to evil, the Bible doesn't give us a discourse on the origin of evil. Uh, it mentions a handful of times, um, you know, the evil, maybe alluding to where it came from. Uh, in Isaiah, Nicole, uh, I uh, Nikolai mentioned this a few weeks ago that iniquity was first found in this character, the Satan. But it doesn't really give us uh, any of the juicy details. Uh, Jesus talks about it later in the Gospel of John. John himself talks about the murder that was from the beginning. But it's not really the details and explanation that we're looking for. Does anyone feel similar when it comes to why we suffer and why we experience pain? You read through this thing and go like, where is it, right? It's got to be in here somewhere. Where is the answer to my pain Where is the answering to my suffering? You think about, we just read through Job. Job, his questions of unjustly suffering are never answered. He never gets the why question filled in for him by God. I mean, the heck, right? Like of all people, like God wrote his story or had his story written. We think, God, give us the answer there. This guy has suffered excruciatingly, just tell us, Just I don't need to know my, the answer to my suffering, just tell me the answer, the, the answer to Job's suffering. But it doesn't. I will say, and we, and we might know this, Job is radically changed by his suffering. Uh, he's even bettered, refined by his suffering. Remember at the end he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and I take back everything that I said about you. So Job has this incredible encounter with God, a powerful life encounter with God. But if I'm honest, this is not the vindication that I'm looking for when I'm suffering. I do want encounter. I I believe you want encounter. But I also want answers. And I imagine that some are left wondering, is that it? Is that all Christianity gives us? You know, like... Well, you know, what's the deal with pain and suffering? Well, just so you know, God isn't the author of evil. Okay. Good. Keep going, right? Like, what else, you know? Well, God is at war with evil. Okay. I like that. That's that's good, right? God uses evil for good. I don't like that, but okay, right? Like, Or like in Job's case, You're too small to understand. I don't like that at all. And then maybe the last one in Scripture, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Not that Scripture says those exact words, but, right, you know, you're bettered, you're strengthened, you're more refined by your suffering. But is that it? Is that all that Scripture gives us? And I think many times, you know, if we're doing like the apologetic answer, that's that's where we stop. Like Job in our psalm from last week, Psalm 77, many of our questions don't get answered. Many of our problems are not resolved. And I want to tell you the truth right now. The Bible does not give us an answer to our pain and suffering. It doesn't. It does, though, give us a person. It gives us the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And in Jesus, God enters the story of humanity. In Jesus, God himself suffers the fate of mankind. Now, Christianity is unique in this sense. It is the only worldview in which God has suffered with his creation. Christianity is also the only religion in what one cannot say. God has not done anything about the problem of evil. Rather, God has dealt with it in a just fashion, and he has, we know the story, extended the offer of salvation to all humanity, deliverance from pain, deliverance from suffering. All this made possible through the work of Jesus on the cross. Now, skeptics often use evil, pain, and suffering as a stone against Christianity, but there is no consolation, none whatsoever, in any other worldview. There just isn't. Christianity is the only religion, the only worldview that has an answer to evil and suffering, and that is this. We are living in an abnormal world which God will one day restore. So this morning, we want to talk a little bit about how the pain and suffering of God speaks to our own pain and suffering. And so I'll begin with this. Dorothy Sayers, she was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis and uh, J.R. Tolkien, and Charles Williams, and some of these other guys. She was the only female inkling, unofficially. That's cool, guys. You guys aren't nerdy enough. Come on. Okay, so she says this in her book, Letters to a Diminished Church, about the incarnation. She says, for whatever reason, God chose to make mankind, man as he is, limited and, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game God is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Jesus... Was as Isaiah tells us, the man of sorrows. Many in, in the modern age, you, you've probably read, there's been a lot of biographies on Jesus in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And many see the career of Jesus as a huge success with a tragic turn of events, you know, just kind of at the end of his life. Like, oh, Jesus, if you just kind of stay this course and mellowed the messianic thing, like, you would have been a success, like, incredible. You know, one of the, one of the greats this turn of events brings about rejection, suffering, persecution, and death. And so it, Jesus' is a success story in their eyes turned tragedy. But if you actually read the Bible for yourself, nothing could be further from the truth. The story of Jesus is one of suffering from beginning to end. And so I just want to chronicle this for us this morning, beginning with the incarnation. So Jesus, the King of Heaven and earth. John tells us that he is the Logos. He is the creative word, the creative power of God. And by him, all things that are created were created by him. He is the source of life. And that source of life became the man, Jesus of Nazareth. He was born in the first century. First of all, a brutal time of history to be alive. You just read about the chronicles of all the sufferings of people there in the Near East. You think about what the Romans did, what the Seleucids did, what the Greeks did to the Jews. It's horrific. The Jewish people were under Roman tyranny at this time. They had been under tyranny for hundreds of years, which meant slavery, which meant, you know, slaughterings. When we were there, I was reminded that King... um, there was a revolt right before the time of Jesus, and I think Caesar, he crucified all of the religious leaders, and he, he, he crucified them along the Apian Way, which was the main highway. It was a sign to the rest of the empire. This is what it looks like to rebel against Rome. This is how it ends. These people were greatly, greatly persecuted. And this is the time of, of history that Jesus grew up in. It was just uncomfortable life in general. Now, Jesus, of course, was born in obscurity, not in the limelight, not like the kings around him, not like the king of heaven deserves. And there was a lot of controversy around his conception and birth, right? Pretty sketchy situation. I don't know if you've ever tried that one on your parents, like, hey, I'm pregnant and it's a virgin birth. (laughs) It doesn't really go well, right? (laughs) I mean, like, do you think people were, like, more stupid in the first century? They're like, oh, yeah, totally, Mary. That happened to my neighbor. Like, it's good, right? Not even, right? And so when we think about, like, Jesus, this is his story. He's born in a very socially conservative religious culture. Nobody believed the story. His family would have been social outcasts for their whole lives. Do we think about this? When they go to their hometown of Bethlehem, this is where the family is from and the whole family is traveling together. Why doesn't Mary, who's nine months pregnant, have a place to have her baby, It's not because there isn't room. I know the scripture says that because there are a lot of people there in Israel, but there's more that's happening there. She has the baby in the barn because they're social outcasts, because it's taboo what's surrounding Mary in this situation. So his family would have been social outcasts his whole life. There's actually this one point in time where the religious Pharisees, it seems like they know Jesus' story the story that surrounds him, and they press on this idea that Jesus was born out of adultery. It followed him his whole life. So literally, Jesus is born in a barn. And then in his life, or excuse me, in his birth, he's presented to the poor and insignificant, not to the rich and prestigious at his birth, right? Remember, there's shepherds there, and then we're like, but there's these three kings. Magi, Refuge, listen, we're gonna say this for the last time today. Magi are not kings. They are weirdo magicians who are obsessed with stars. That's they're crazy people. Like truly, this is how the Jews would have seen these people, totally social outcasts that have gone off in some weird sect of Judaism. They're stargazers. Like you go to Sabaspool, right? These people are out there, right? And they're I'm not like they're kind. Loving people, but they're strange, right? That's what we're talking about here. They're like, well, the kings, they kind of bounce the whole thing out. No, they don't. They're weirdo people. And they're there at his birth, social outcasts. So on top of that, King Herod, a tyrant and very successful murderer, when Jesus is two years of age, tries to hunt him down, causing Jesus and his family to be Jewish refugees in Egypt for a number of years. Upon returning, he, they live in Nazareth. And he experienced hardship and oppression under Roman tyranny, most likely... Uh, the death of Joseph, his adopted father, because Joseph is never mentioned after Jesus' youth. And, and, by the way, Jesus doesn't have, like, superpowers, right? That's not what the Bible's saying. Like, Joseph, you know, he's on his deathbed, and Jesus is like, mm, you know? And, like, hey, oh, Jesus, you know, Joseph's never going to die while Jesus is still around. Joseph dies. His father. He loses his father. And he becomes the one to take care of the family until he's 30 years of age. And then when he begins his ministry, steps into this messianic role of the king of Israel, he is rejected by his family that he has taken care of. They tell everyone that he's out of his mind. And then it's amazing to see who Jesus identifies with in his life ministry. Remember, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the good news he brought was for the poor and broken, little, lowly people. This is who Jesus comes for. It's the commoner, the working class man or woman, the sick, the poor, the outcast, the prostitute, the insane, the demon-possessed, the tax collector, the scum of the earth, oppressed, broken people, like Isaiah says, people from whom we hide our faces, the people that remind us that the world can be a terrible place and awful things that people have done and do to each other. So when you picture Jesus... I really think the right way to picture Jesus of Nazareth going around Galilee is more like a zombie apocalypse, right? Just all the crazy, poor, just like backwoods people that are following him around. These are the people that Jesus, the Son of God, associates with. When God comes to earth, he doesn't immune himself to the human condition. But he fully identifies with it, and he takes it upon himself. Remember there's that instance where he heals the woman with the flow of blood? It's the only place where anything like this is mentioned, but the effect that it has on Jesus' person. Do you remember the story? Jesus is on his way to heal this little girl who's dying. And on the way, they're in this crowd, and everyone's touching Jesus, but one person in particular has incredible faith that if she can simply touch the hem of Jesus' garment, she will be healed from this flow of blood she's had 12 years, and no doctors and no amount of money can heal her. And so she reaches out and she touches his, his you know, garments. And it says that immediately she's healed, and Jesus says, Who touched me? For I felt power go out from me. I've often wondered if there's something going on there. And this is speculation, but Isaiah tells us that he has borne our grief and carried our sorrow. And I wonder if there is some sort of exchange that happened there. Jesus feels the weight of this woman's pain and suffering as she is released from it. She is healed and Jesus feels an absence, a loss of power. He takes the the sin and the suffering of the world upon himself. As the prophet says, surely he has borne our grief, carried our sorrow. He was a man of sorrows and one who was a close friend to grief. Now, that's the life of Jesus, and that's just a snapshot of it. But then we think about the shame and suffering of the cross. And I do not have time to do justice to this this morning. But the New Testament refers again and again to the shame of the cross. Referring to it as an offense. A total and complete turn off to people. Nikolai mentioned this a few uh, about a month ago. He mentioned that decent Roman citizens would not even talk about the cross. Because it was so appalling and grotesque. It was uncouth to even mention the cross in mixed company. And to this day, I'm not sure humans have figured out a more brutal or painful way to kill someone. And yet, this is the death that God chose to die in order to redeem mankind. But it isn't just the fact that the physical sufferings of the cross are so awful. Those are. But the scripture Speaks mainly about the social shame and rejection of the cross as well, and this is a, a a theme all throughout the Bible. Because remember, the gospel came to a shame honor culture, a people who had lost a face or presence, an audience with God. The gospel is written to these people, and so Jesus bears the shame. He bears the social shame and being coming the outcast. In order that that shame can be taken away like the scapegoat of the Old Testament. And God's people who are under shame and under suffering can now be brought in and given an audience with God. They can, be, they can see, behold his face like the Levitical blessing says. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Cause his face to shine upon you. May he smile upon you and give you peace. Only in Jesus is this possible because he bore the shame and the sufferings of the cross. Again, it's interesting. I mean, there's very little that we're, that we're told about the, the, the physical pain of Jesus on the cross. And even from Jesus, they were physical. I mean, we know just from history, excruciating is the word. It means out of the cross. But there's emotional, psychological, and spiritual pain that Jesus is experiencing there. As well, he experienced the pain of rejection and separation from God the Father For our sake. Remember, we're told by the gospel writers, when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is in the middle of the day. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cries with a loud voice, Eloi, Elo, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we think about this, the the sufferings of Jesus are immeasurable, excruciating, out of the cross, it's awful. Yet when Jesus cries out, he never cries out about his pain. But he cries out about his abandonment. He cries out about his thirst. Isn't that strange? John records this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture... I thirst. So these are the two things that Jesus is concerned about. These are the pain of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And oh, how thirsty I am. So let's talk about these two things for a minute. First, let's talk about Jesus' thirst. Jesus is definitely thirsty, right? Uh, Crucifixion, is uh, what it does is it dehydrates the body. Jesus is literally drowning in his own blood. He's suffocating. But this is not what Jesus is crying out about. It says that he said this to fulfill the scripture. So automatically, we should be looking for a deeper meaning here. Again, we haven't heard Jesus say one word about his head, his back, his hands, his feet, his face. And we know that all of these were pulverized. But all of a sudden, his thirst is unbearably painful. And I want you to think about this, church. Think about the horror as we get the full impact of what John the Apostle is telling us. Remember when he records Jesus on that great day of the feast where the whole Jewish nation is gathered together. Jesus cries out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus says that he is the source of living water that can satisfy our every desire. And here on the cross, he says the living water has run dry. The water of life has failed Jesus. The fullness has been emptied. The infinite has become finite and the source of life has come to death. Remember, Jesus cries out about his God forsakenness. It's incredible to realize as well that there's this moment, and I don't mean like, you know, like a passing moment, but there's this moment, like this monument in history. That there on the cross, for the first time in all eternity, something happened in the nature of God that had never happened before. There was a tearing asunder of the Godhead there at the cross. A gaping wound and pain in the very heart of God as the Father turns his face from the sin-laden Son and as the eternal Son tastes sin and death for us his enslaved creation. See, on the cross of Jesus, God himself is crucified. But it's not just the pain and suffering of the Son. The Father suffers the death of the Son. He dearly loves and takes upon himself. The Father takes upon himself there at Calvary the pain and suffering of this world. Can we just pause for a moment and think about that. The God of the Bible is not far off in some remote place, some palace in the sky, far removed from our pain and suffering, like the Greek tales record for us, like the ancients believed. But the God of the Bible is one who himself is a victim of pain and suffering. One of my favorite books that I have ever read is a book by John Stott called The Cross of Christ. And if you've been coming here long enough, you've heard me talk about it. But John Stott talks about um, some of his journeys in um, Asia, and he was an ecumenical Christian leader. He had um, just a wide audience and great opportunities to mix with religious leaders and share the gospel with them. And he says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. Because in a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes are closed. There's a ghost of a smile playing around his mouth. And a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. Remember Buddhism. It tells us that, look, all of life is pain. All of life is suffering. And so stop desiring. Just detach yourself from these things, and then you won't be affected. You will reach zen. You will reach nirvana and be unmoved by any of these things. And so there he is, he he observes this, but he says, But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet. Back, lacerated limbs, wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks. Mouth dry and intolerably thirsty. Plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me, he says. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. And he finishes, the cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. Here's a radical thing to think about, that the Son of God chose a life of pain and suffering, knowing full well that he would bear the sins of the world on himself. And and in this way, church, Jesus truly is our Emmanuel, God with us. He is not just God over us. He is not simply God before us. He is not even God for us. All of these are important. All of these are huge in the implications that they carry. But the Bible tells us that God is with us. God in our suffering. God with us in our forsakenness. God with us in the darkness. God with us in betrayal and abandonment. There is something incredibly consoling about someone who is With you. Someone who has walked in your shoes knows the same trials, the same troubles, the pain and suffering that you know. Uh, I've talked about this a few times, but many of you guys know that uh, we had a huge scare with our daughter Evelyn. She was diagnosed uh, 12 hours after she was born with a congenital heart disease. And I mean, this doctor liked. Many doctors, not all doctors, but did not have a very great bedside manner. And so, like, the first word I get is, like, your daughter has heart disease and she's going to die. It's like four in the morning, something like that. My wife's bawling her eyes out. We just have no idea what's going on. We're just thrown into this whirlwind. She's diagnosed with this congenital heart disease and she's being, you know, driven down to Stanford because that's where she's going to have heart surgery, hopefully to save her life. And for the next you know, few weeks, as we're going through all this, many people reached out to us with verses, and there was prayer, and all of these things were so helpful and incredible, and we're so thankful for that. But I have to say, more comfort than any Bible verses we receive were the number of people that reached out to us as a resource and it's simply people we, we never met in our, in our lives just said, hey, we know what you're going through and we're available. People that their, their kids had had congenital heart disease and, and gone just through the same thing. And I cannot tell you what a comfort this was as these people began to walk with us. They weren't giving us advice. It wasn't like that. It was just simply fellow companions for the road of suffering. Others that had walked this path before us and had come through it. Our suffering was real. It really was, but it wasn't unique, our suffering. And we, we weren't alone. And this was huge for us. And, and, and this was actually kind of part of this whole thing that God was doing in that time. You guys know the song. Uh, anybody ever listened to Jay Vernon McGee? I have parents that listen to J. Vernon McGee, and I heard him like a few times. But on um, the beginning of his radio show, he, they have this hymn, How Firm a Foundation. And it's taken from Isaiah 43. But that was this incredible passage and song during this time. And what it communicated to me, and I felt like the Lord was just speaking to me through this whole event, was presence. God's presence with us. He wasn't ending our suffering, he wasn't giving us a timeline for our suffering, he wasn't giving us answers to our suffering, but he was giving us presence, and this is what that passage says. But now thus says the Lord, the one who created you, O Jacob, the one who formed you, O Israel, don't be afraid, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. He wasn't saying, there is no water. Don't be afraid of the water. Stop thinking about the water. No, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not destroy you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame will not consume you. What is God saying here? You're mine, and I'm with you. I'm with you. You belong to me. I created you. I know you, and I'm giving you my presence. The scripture gives us this story again and again of God hearing the pain and the suffering of his children and coming down to them and being with them. You know, of course, we have the exodus, right? It appears to Moses, I have heard the sufferings of my people and I have come down to do something, to bring deliverance. And of course, we see this ultimately, the condescension of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has come down And He has walked this path before us, with us, and as we sing, He is walking with us still. There in the cross, Jesus was identifying to the full extent with suffering humanity. We think about, you know, just all that humanity has suffered throughout history, whether it's disease or disaster, injustice, cruelty, torture, rape, murder, heartbreak, death, abandonment. And history is just a, it's just a long tale of suffering and woe. And Jesus, in his love, chose to experience the full impact of what sin had done to the human race. The cross and the whole career of Jesus testifies to the immeasurable compassion and camaraderie of the Son of God for suffering humanity. Last thing I'll share before we kind of wrap things up. Uh, There was an English poet named George Herbert. He lived from 1593 to 1633. I don't imagine... Many of you have read George Herbert, but maybe you have. But he wrote this incredible poem called The Sacrifice. And I read through it again uh, this week as I was just studying and thinking about the sufferings of Christ. And it's this incredible poem. Uh, and this is the reason why. Uh, stanza after stanza after stanza, 62 stanzas in total. He chronicles the various sufferings and affliction of the life of Jesus, everyone with the refrain was ever grief like mine. I'm reading through this thing. I'm like, I mean, this is just me just being human, just being char. I'm like, come on, what is this thing going to be over? Like, this is insane. Like, I got stuff to do. And it just hits me. Like, open your eyes, man. What's George Herbert doing? He's stacking the deck one after another, after another. Mike described this the other day. Wave after wave after wave after wave after wave. You think the moment comes for a breath to sustain. You know, wave, another wave. Another big set comes in. Wave after wave. Whatever your pain is, Jesus knows. Whatever you are suffering, He knows. Whether it's sin and injustice that's been done to you, Jesus knows. The repercussions of the sins of others, goodness. Jesus knows that. Whatever it might be, Jesus knows. And the exhortation to us in Scripture, church, is then that we go to Him. That we engage with Him. That we seek His face when we feel alone. And that we believe against doubt. That God has given us his presence with us in our suffering. God has given us his person in our suffering. When you feel alone, when you feel overwhelmed in suffering and pain, go to him. Jesus knows. I was reminded, one of my favorite um, novels out of the Chronicles of Narnia is The Horse and His Boy. Anybody else, a, just C.S. Lewis nerd? Yeah, well, me more than you, I have a tattoo of C.S. Lewis. So what, right? I never thought I'd be able to do that. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> C.S. Lewis street cred. But there's this beautiful part in, um, in the story. In Shasta, he's this little boy, and he just lived just hell, 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 hell. And he's trying to get to freedom, and he's just been through all these things, and he's chased by a lion. He almost loses his life multiple times. And there comes this time where he's journeying in the dark, and he's trying to get uh, to um, the land of Narnia because he knows there he'll find freedom, and he gets lost. And it's like this darkness is so thick, he can't see anything. And the horse that he's on is just walking And it's just like he's just walking into the darkness and all of a sudden it says there's this presence with him and he feels breath on his leg as he's riding and he's scared out of his mind because there have been lions on the path. And all of a sudden the voice says, why are you crying? And then he says, tell me all of your sorrows. And Shasta begins to tell him one after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. And the lion then begins to say, yeah, I was with you. That was me who chased you. That was me doing this and guiding this and pushing you this way and bringing you that way to bring you to this moment. It's this incredible moment. The last time I read it to the boys, we're reading it, we get to that part, and I just start bawling. I'm like, okay, it's, it's nighttime. You know, like, see, guys. You know, like, it was just like... What's wrong with dad? Dad is an emotional wreck. (laughs) But this is that picture in scripture. Tell him your sorrows. He knows. He knows. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And he knows what it's like to bear the burden of pain and suffering. But let me say this in closing. Something we have to remember and that's this. Jesus isn't just Another victim of suffering. Jesus didn't just suffer with us, but Jesus suffers in order to end all suffering. Paul tells us that there on the cross, God was working through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, to bring things back into order, to bring things back into creation, to heal all of the creation, all of the universe. And through the work of Jesus, God has dealt with injustice, sin, suffering, all the evil of the world. God has nailed it to the cross. He laid the judgment our sin deserves, which the world deserves, on Jesus. Jesus was put to death. And what this means is since Jesus bore our sin in his death, when God comes to restore all things, and he will, That is the promise. When he comes to restore all things, he can destroy all sin, all suffering, all evil without destroying us. He can kill it without killing us. And then we can enter into the joy of our Lord. We can enter into life ever more. Remember, Jesus came and suffered for us in order to end our suffering. So your suffering, your pain, my suffering, my pain is not the end of our story. It is not the end. and through the work of Jesus, God promises to fill up all our emptiness, soothe all our pain, and drown all our sorrows. Isaiah says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats, the finest wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy that shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and he will remove his people's disgrace, the shame, the suffering. He'll get rid of it from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Last thing I'll say. So even though we might feel that these trials and troubles are defining us and that our sufferings are more than we can bear, or in Paul's words, we face death all day long, we are like sheep to be slaughtered, the resounding response of God's people is no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, the present nor the future, any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. In the gospel, God offers us a suffering companion for the road of life and a table of feasting and fullness at Journey's End. That is God's answer to our pain and suffering. Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive this word. And Lord, maybe today this is the word for someone. They are in the midst of their suffering, and Lord, your word is you are with them. The water will not destroy them, you will be with them. Pray that they would receive that word. Lord, maybe this is a word, Lord, for the future. We don't even know what lies before us. We live in a world that is so uncertain. And we thank you, Lord, that whatever uh, the shadowlands might manifest, that you have promised us presence, that you are our shepherd who leads us by still waters, who brings us to the green pastures, who restores our soul. You're the one, Lord, that leads us through the valley, not only of, of, of threat, but even of death, Lord, that you hold our hand and you bring us out the other side to a table of feasting, a table of rejoicing. Lord, would this build us up, would this encourage us, Lord, to lean more into you, Lord, to bring all, as Peter says, to cast all our cares on you because you care for us. And so now, Lord, as we worship, as we respond uh, with songs of praise and thanksgiving, Lord, would we cast our cares upon you, Lord, as we take communion together, Lord, would we know that our sins are forgiven us for Jesus' sake, Lord, would we remember what the Son of God suffered to bring us in to the fold of God. We ask all this in your name, amen.